meetings for today. Comes from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 1, beginning with the fourth verse. Now the word of the Lord came. Boom! Hello. <laughs> Mike's not working. Uh, now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, truly I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I'm only a boy. For you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Here ends our second reading. Please pray with me. Most holy and gracious God, May your spirit be with us in this time to come, that in these words we may hear your word. Amen. I must say that part of me is jealous, or at least admiring, of the prophet Jeremiah. Here was someone, this have, again, here's someone who was preaching at the end of the time of the kingdom of Judah, at the, uh, right in the time when Babylon was rising up and, and threatening them on their borders. And here was someone who was speaking up and telling Judah about how they had gone wrong, standing up to those in power, and doing so uh, at great personal cost. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, actually has quite a few biographical details about Jeremiah, including Jeremiah being thrown in stocks, being thrown in prison in the bottom of a cistern, being beaten up, being reviled. It includes several sections where he laments even that he was born because his life has been such a struggle and his calling as a prophet uh, has involved so many hardships. At one point in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah uh, says that he's someone who never got married because he didn't want to put his family through all that God was calling him to do. Jeremiah paid a high price, but at the same time is someone that we're still talking about 2,500 years later. He had that deep personal courage to stand up and try and change things based on how God was moving within him. And of course we have uh, modern day prophets, modern day Jeremiah's uh, in our society this past week, I was reading Charles Marsh's book, God's Long Summer, which looks at the role of religion in the lives of different aspects of the civil rights movement in Mississippi in 1964. So again, Marsh looks at uh, people who were African-American and people who were white, people who were uh, ardent white supremacists, people who were civil rights ad- advocates and everything in between. And he wants to find out how does religion affect each of these people. Well, he opens his account with the story uh, of Fannie Lou Hamer, and she's uh, a woman who grew up in Rulesville, Mississippi, down near the Delta. 
1962, some of the civil rights workers came down to the Delta saying, hey, if we can get people to vote in the Delta, register to vote in the Delta, if we can do that in the Delta, we could do it anywhere. Um, so they came down and uh, gave this talk at a church, and Fannie Lou heard this, person pre- heard this person talking and preaching and said, you know what, I'm going to go do that. So at age 44, she was one of a handful of people who got in a bus and went down to the local county courthouse to register to vote. And as she described, she goes up to the county clerk's office, and of course there are people outside with guns trying to intimidate them as they're pulling into this county courthouse. And she goes up, and as she's there signing up, the form, of course, wants to know her name, which she gives. And of course the form wants to know her employer's name. And she knows just what that means. So she gives them an employer's name. And then the form, of course, wants to know your address. And Fannie Lou knows just what that means to give over her address, but she does. And then, of course, they go through this literacy test, and so she was asked to read through various sections of the Mississippi State Constitution. And as she said, she didn't even know there was a constitution in the state of Mississippi before she was asked to do that. Now, that first time she tried to go register to vote, there was some small glitch that they called her out on, and they they rejected her application. And as they were driving back on the bus back to Rulesville, uh, the cops pulled them over and arrested the driver. And the charge they arrested him on was that their bus looked too much like a school bus. Apparently, the uh, arrest certificate actually said that the bus was too yellow. Apparently, that was a crime. Um, And as they were sitting on that bus waiting for hours and hours to see what was going to happen, Fannie Lou, started in the back, started singing and led them all in songs. They waited for hours for this to to get resolved. Well, again, Fannie Lou gets back to home, and as soon as she, as soon as she gets home, there's her employer. She worked on a local plantation. There's, a, there's her employer, and of course, the employer says, you either stop doing this stuff or you're going to have to lose your job. And so, even though she didn't have much money, she said, okay, fine. I'm not working anymore. And then they were worried for her safety, so she left and went to a friend's house. And then they were worried about being at the friend's house, so she went to another place. And sure enough, that next night, her friend's house, the room where she was staying, got, got, shut, got you know, littered with 16 different bullets. But Fannie Lou didn't give up. And she went on a, the next year she was on a, a trip up to South Carolina with a bunch of civil rights workers. And on their way back down, they stopped in, a, in the town of Winona, Mississippi. And there they went to a lunch counter, which at that point was supposed to be integrated, but they didn't let them eat there. And so when they started uh, complaining to the police, the police arrested them, took them to the local Winona jail, and then beat the crap out of them. Um, poor Fannie Lou uh, was beaten so badly by the police that uh, she actually, one of her kidneys ended up failing long term. But she didn't give up, and she kept fighting and kept struggling. I mean, here's a story of a prophet. I see these stories, and they move me because it's, these are stories of such human courage, and there's something about that type of courage to stand up for what's right in the face of such big obstacles that can't help but move me. But at the same time, I, I, I'm not that type of person. This is one of the things that I find frustrating. I'm just not because I'm a middle child. I want everyone to be happy. <laughs> I'm the ultimate peacemaker. I I go out of my way and always have to try and see all sides and try and listen to all people and say, oh, well, that makes sense and that makes sense too. I just don't have it in my DNA to be someone who's a prophet. So where does this all come from? How does people like Jeremiah stand up or Fannie Lou Hamer stand up to do this? And it starts, if you look at our text, it starts with this, this call from God. God speaking to us, God, God's word coming to us in some profound way. And in the case of Jeremiah, it was when he was a boy. When he was a boy, the word of God got into him. 
I think about my teenage years. Again, when I was a teenager growing up in, in Wellesley, Massachusetts, one of the things they taught us was that the basic values of society are clear. If you work hard and if you get a good education uh, and you're good to other people and are not extravagant in the way you spend or do, you sort of live that golden mean, then all will be well. Justice will be served. Maybe you had similar messages taught to you explicitly or implicitly when you were growing up. Work hard, get your education, everything will be well. But even as a teenager, I'm like, this whole thing of how the society works is just a bill of goods. And I could tell it as a teenager. I'm like, let's say I wasn't born in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Let's say I was born in rural India in 1979. What opportunities would I have? Maybe, maybe none. Hard work, whatever, wouldn't have gotten me anywhere. Or let's say I wasn't born in a, in a loving family where my parents devoted huge amounts of resources to my education and to bringing me up. Let's say I was in a family where that, that wasn't the case. All the hard work in the world wouldn't get me anywhere. I was lucky to be born with, with a good, good head on my shoulders. Let's say that wasn't the case. Our society really values that these days. And so as I looked around, let's say I was born with some sort of congenital illness or some sort of illness or bad thing happened to my family. This whole sense of like, oh, just work hard and get an education. It doesn't work out. It's not the way the world functions. And even as a teenager, it's like, this just isn't true. And that's why when I read the Bible as a teenager and saw the story of Jesus, I'm like, well, this actually makes sense. In the Bible, it says everyone is equally worthy in God's eyes. Everyone. And that regardless of what's going on, God's with you in the midst of this. This is one of the core messages of the Bible. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. When you look at someone like Jesus, here's someone who's standing up to people who abuse power to hurt others. And I'm like, that makes sense. You know, here's Jesus who's standing with people who are sick and trying to heal them. Or standing with people who have been marginalized and trying to advocate with them and say that they are of worth and value. And I read through the Bible and I'm like, this, unlike the thing I've been sold all the time, this is actually something that makes sense. This is the only value system that I've, been, that I've been reading and confronting with that actually has real integrity, where it really lifts up and says everybody is valued, particularly those who might have it hard in this, in this life. And how about you? I mean, like, where did that... What was the first time that the, that the word of God really sunk in for you? Was it back when you were a teenager? Was it later on? But what's amazing is even when the word of God might sink into you, even though you might say, like, this is compelling, and it somehow gets in there, and it can't get out, and you go through life, and you might get distracted, but it keeps coming up in odd ways. But even with that, it can be hard sometimes to actually act on it. When I was in college, my junior year, uh, there were students on campus who organized themselves uh, into the living wage campaign. And they took it upon themselves, and they worked with the lowest-income workers at Harvard to try and get them a living wage. So rather than getting paid $7 an hour, they wanted them to get paid $10 an hour or something along those lines. And Harvard, of course, refused. Harvard said, well, we don't have the money for that, even though they're the biggest endowment in the world and at the time was charging a huge tuition and all these other things. They're like, we don't have money for that. You know, if we spend money on these workers, then you know, above market rates on these workers, then we won't be able to devote that money to various parts of our educational mission. And the living wage campaign people weren't satisfied with this, so they ended up sitting in and camping out in the president's office. Uh, and there was this mini tent city outside as they were 
saying, we're not going to budge until you negotiate with the workers. And, and there I was seeing this going on. And I was, you know, good middle child. I was like, well, I see the arguments on both sides. And, you know, I, I see how one could advocate for one and advocate for the other. And, uh, and yet, you know, again, I'd be walking in Harvard Yard and I'd hear some people, you know, saying, oh, I hope it rains and washes all those tents away, you know. And yet I knew some people who were sitting in there. But what did I do? I was comfortably on the sidelines, doing nothing. What is it that moves us to actually do something? Even we might look at something and go, I know that's right. I know I should do something, but you don't. The more I thought about this, and again, looking at this passage from Jeremiah, you know, there's that next step that happens. It's like Jeremiah's like, I can't do this, and then God actually puts God's word into Jeremiah's mouth. There's this physical action of the word of God being put into Jeremiah's mouth. That for us, we need to have someone, some person, something, put that word in your mouth. I remember in 2007, in the spring of 2007, I was in my final year at Yale Divinity School, and I, I gone through most of my requirements for my degree, but I hadn't yet done my ethics requirement. And the only ethics course that wasn't a small seminar that I could get into was this uh, feminist uh, ethics course. And I thought to myself, I'm like, well, I really should take a course in this. I don't know much about feminism. I guess I should do this. So I took this course, and the two professors were, uh, one was a woman named Letty Russell, who'd already retired, and she was actually in late stages of cancer, and she would die a few weeks after the class ended. Um, and the other was this woman, Margaret Farley, who was the first tenured professor at Yale Divinity School. And I didn't know it at the time, but these are two legends of professors. Uh, and so I remember just being, the, the one thing about the course, there are a couple things that stick with me, but one is just the person of Letty Russell. Here was someone who was such a strong-willed person that literally she was on her deathbed and she would be getting out of the hospital and coming down to teach because she was like, this is what God calls me to do, I'm teaching. And even when she was in that state, I would not want to meet Letty Russell in the back of a dark alley. Um, I mean, she just had this fire in her that is just, that was an unquenchable fire for what she did. Here's a woman who was in the very first class of women out of Harvard Divinity School, the very first one. She was one of the first group of women ever ordained in the Presbyterian Church. And when she was ordained, the only, as a woman, the only place she could go was either in the slums or in a rural area. And so Letty Russell, in the 1950s and 60s, was working in the heart of Harlem, uh, at a church in the heart of Harlem. And, and again, Harlem's, Harlem's you know, pretty nice now, at least most parts of it are. In the late 50s, early 60s, it was a different place, uh, especially for a white woman um, you know, coming down from Harvard to work there. But Letty was there, and she worked there for 18 years. And while she was working there, she also got her PhD at Union Theological Seminary. And she learned what it was like to bring good news, uh, to talk about liberation for different people. And she lived it herself. Uh, She also later came out as a lesbian uh, after she had divorced her husband. And one of the things she did in her career, she ended up starting uh, an organization to help female theologians all around the globe. So right now, there are students of Letty Russell that are teaching in major universities in places like South Korea and Ghana and different places in Central and South America who are all been encouraged by Letty Russell, this, this walking force of nature. Uh, she told that great story. I still love the story. <laughs> At one point, she's up there and she said, well, when I first got up to Yale Divinity School, this was in the early 1970s, uh, the only restroom for the women was like in the far corner of the Divinity School. 
And so here's Letty Russell being like, well, that didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> and so she ended up, uh, she's like, so she got together, was, she brought together some of the female students, and they picked out the best restroom they wanted, which was the one right next to the bathroom, right, right next to the library, and they did a sit-in a sit all day long, where it was like, there was one woman after another after another who was going to keep using that bathroom all day long, and so finally the administration gave up and said, okay, this is now a woman's bathroom. <laughs> uh, that's the way Letty Russell was. Uh, and she also taught me about this hermeneutical circle, which is key to liberation thought, where she's like, the first step in any theological thinking is you have to start with lived human experience, period. Because when you don't start there, you actually end up getting into the assumptions of the people who were in the establishment who wrote that theology. You've got to actually look at how people are living, particularly those on the margins, and that's the first step. Look at that experience and look at it deeply. And only once you look at that experience, you then reflect at that reflect on that experience with tradition in the Bible, and then you bring that back to the experience, and then you keep reflecting on it. And that's the way theology works. Now, also in the spring of 2007, I was trying to get ordained, and the Metropolitan Boston Association of the UCC uh, had the most requirements for ordination of any association in the country. And one of the requirements they had was I needed to do a social justice project. And this is a time when I'm trying to finish this book on missionaries that I was doing on the side. I didn't have a dime to my name. I was at the end of divinity school. Um, taking a full course load, trying to find a job. Uh, and my father was in late stages of terminal cancer. And the last thing I wanted to do was one more thing. And I, tried, I gave them like a... I was like, hey, can I do this? And they're like, no. You just need to be a legitimate thing. And I'm like, oh, heavens. So I ended up um, reaching out... I ended up getting connected with this guy named Pat Spear, who ran the TMO equivalent... Uh, in New Haven, Connecticut. This is the IAF community organizing group. And so I was his intern for five to eight hours a week for the whole spring semester, working with, working with their equivalent of TMO. And I got to say, it was an eye-opening experience. There I was, not only learning community organizing principles, but being in parts of New Haven I would never have been in otherwise. And I remember going into this one Roman Catholic parish, and some of the leaders in the congregation, these people who were undocumented immigrants getting up and have, finding their voice where they could stand up and advocate for their rights. And I remember sitting there watching that being like, wow. Wow. Didn't know something like that could happen. Sometimes God like, puts that word in your mouth and says, you've got you to gotta do something else. Well, a year later, I found myself working at my first job at Harvard and as a chaplain and one, after one evening, I was grabbing a drink with uh, some friends in our favorite watering hole, a place called Daedalus, and I met this Harvard Divinity School student named Jake Rayton. Now, Jake, Jake is one of these, like, true activists. I mean, if there is a barricade, he will be on top of it, okay? I, I mean, he will search it out. He's just one of these people where if, if there's a table to toss, he will toss it. And uh, so Jake was full of ideas, and he had this idea to go do stuff about confronting don't ask, don't tell. So we made this proposal, and this is one of these you know, gut check moments. I'm like, I've never done anything like this. But I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do this. Now, the interesting thing is, like, Jake might be full of you know, piss and vinegar and everything else, but Jake is like, not very organized. So I'm extremely organized compared to Jake, which, if you know me, is saying something. Um, and so I did all, of the, all the logistics and organizing for what became a four-state bus tour where we raised funds for it, we found students to go do this and work with us, and we went to, we targeted Democrats up for re-election or moderate Republicans up for re-election on the Armed Services Committee in the U.S. Senate 
because the Senate was not putting forth a bill to end Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And so we went into these districts, and we had someone who wanted to serve in the military but was LGBT who would go forward to sign up, and when they got rejected, we'd sit in in the military places, and, and then the press would be there, and people would get arrested, and sort of classic civil disobedience kind of thing. And there I found myself in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, attempting to sign up to be a chaplain in the Navy and getting arrested and being out in front of a bunch of press cameras and then having to go to jail. If you had asked me six years before... <laughs> If I would ever be in that situation, I would have said, not in a million years. (laughs) It's amazing how sometimes God works in our lives. Now, because you're all here at First Congregational Church, I'm guessing you have felt some sort of call of God at some point. God's word has gotten into your system in some way. That keeps, you bringing, that keeps you coming back here. There's something that disturbs you deep down. Now, oftentimes, it may not be there. Our calling is to remember that. Our, our duty is to remember that call. How do we come here and remember that, those original things that called us there, that, those original things that, that shook us and got into us? How do we remember what that was and put it before our minds and then wait? Because sometime God is going to put a word in your mouth. And when God puts a word in your mouth, there's no telling what might happen. 